Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1081. Oh, let's just jump right into the ID10T community corkboard events at ID10T.com. Like Jay, who writes, So my wife wrote a book. Well, three. The first two of the Hidden Pearl Saga are available on Amazon and Google, and the third will be available on August 1st, 2020. These books follow a young protagonist, Zoe. She lives in a space station above a post-apocalyptic Earth who finds a journal connected to someone in the past. She discovers that the origin of magic wasn't what she expected. The journal sets her upon a quest for magical items that can change the future of Earth. She meets allies and enemies along the way and must figure out whom she can trust. Just search for MP Starkweather. Um, she's been working super hard on these. I would love for other people to enjoy these as much as she enjoyed writing them. Thank you so much for sharing, Jay. Uh, I hope people check out your wife's book. Well, three books, uh, because they sound fantastic. So congratulations to her on writing. Writing one book is hard. Writing three books is amazing. <laughs> I wrote a book like 10 years ago, and I'm like, I don't think I need to write another book. It's a long, It's a process. It is a real long process. So congratulations, MP Starkweather. Um, this episode is Gavin Rossdale of Bush. The okay, so the band Bush is very uh, it 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 anchors me into a very incredible period uh, of my life. I had just kind of started working for MTV. I had just kind of started working for K Rock in Los Angeles, and when Sixteen Stone dropped, um, that that album had so many hit songs on it, and I just so associate that album. And the guitar riffs on that album with being in the station at K-Rock as a, however old I was, 20-something. Uh, and it just, I don't know, it just anchors me in a really incredible time in my life. And so the album is very special to me. And uh, and I'm a fan of the band. And it was, it, Gavin was such a lovely chap to talk to. Chap. He's a lovely chap to talk to, but just a very nice man. And uh, and I'm so glad we had this opportunity to... Because Bush has a new album, which is out now. It is out as of the posting of this podcast. Just came out July 17th, 2020. It's called The Kingdom. So go pick it up. And um, at the very end of the podcast, Gavin plays 
plays a Bush song, plays one of the Bush songs from 16 Stones. So uh, it was just a super, super, super fun chat. And uh, even if you, whether or not you listened, whether or not you uh, scratched up your 16 Stones CD from the CD case, the in-case CD case booklet that was in the front seat of your car that hopefully, like now people fiddle with their phones But in the 90s, in the 1900s, we used to almost get into car accidents by grabbing the CD case that would fly off the seat onto the floor. That was a thing you weren't supposed to do in the 1900s to prevent uh, so you wouldn't get in a car accident. But anyway, very enjoyable podcast number 1081 with Mr. Gavin Rossdale. Roll the thing! Initiating ID10T protocol. kids hanging in there uh they're doing great they they've been away with their mom um we started off the quarantine thing together and then they went away with their mom and um and so i began the assignment part of school which was this this is the hidden this silent beginning which was like the chaos of like three boys two older boys like here's your assignments you know i'm gonna leave the room good luck doing those assignments you know, so, <laughs> our first week was nuts and like all i kept thinking was like you know um at my kids school they were like you haven't done any hoarding yet you haven't i was like no why what was no so i go there and everyone's leaving with the toilet paper so i just like kept on going going shopping and, and stocking my uh stuff up all the time with um like the freezer up with stuff so that the kids said so get food and we sit around every night and I'd be like, this could be the last of the electricity. Okay guys, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I bought all the candles in town and uh, you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. what so then we did that. Then, then they brought, um, I did one week of um, the organized one. You know what I mean? The, the sort of the online school. Mm-hmm. So then I was like patrolling the hallway, like a sort of ex musician, teacher you know <laughs> just wandering the hallways you know sort of you know just checking in on things and then i was getting really i was getting i suffered uh, emotional abuse at the hands of my 11 year old who was telling me that my english way of doing long division is not right even though my answer was right and his wasn't was you like, know the yeah you you should show yeah <laughs> if your kid discovers uh another brick in the wall by pink floyd you're done um, but the, the idea that there's a new math and a new way to solve math problems, I have friends who are educators who have written books to teach parents how to understand like the screwy new math and how it works because it is entirely different from how we were taught growing up. Yeah. I think the answer is Google. Yeah. The answer is Google. But that's the thing I always wonder, like, how would I... I can't imagine what school would have been like if literally the answer to everything was in my pocket at all times. I, I just can't. I remember having to check out books and, oh, they weren't available, so I had to wait. So a report was late because I couldn't get the book. I should have tried to check it out sooner. I mean, can you even fathom what it would be like to be a kid with the sum total of human knowledge in your pocket at all time? 
Well, I've been thinking further to that. Like, you know, people, there's a friend of mine who's giving birth in two weeks' time. And uh, can you imagine all these kids um, growing up who just think that wearing a mask is just a normal sort of accoutrement? You know, we used to think like, you know, cool belts were the thing. Now it's like yeah. having a cool mask, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, they'll, they'll be fat. Yes. The fashion, they'll get, they'll get fashion. They'll be, uh, you know, there'll be Gucci masks. There will be, you know, Michael Kors masks. I'm sure. Yeah, someone bought me, someone gave me very kindly um, the, um, you know, Virgil Abloh um, Off-White, mm-hmm. Off-White thing, which is a great brand. A little overpriced. You know, I bought it for my kids. A little overpriced. 600 bucks for a, t-shirt, a sweatshirt. It's a oh little God. overpriced, but fair play. He's like in the world of fashion and doing all that. So I don't mind that. But um I did notice the gift because the leather price was a hundred bucks for the mask. And I was like, now that's cynical. That's, that's <laughs> cashing in on Corona. Come on now, give it away. Give them away. Let everybody wear off white masks. I just didn't yeah. see the, the, it must've cost at least $3 to make. And probably $3. Maybe okay. four. Maybe they're going crazy. So I'm like, that's a markup. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know people who are selling them for almost nothing who are at home cutting up fabric and making them by hand. Right. Who are making them with their hands and they're selling them for like fifteen dollars. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you're you, you, you pay, you're paying for brand a little bit. You know what I mean? It's just it's just it's just capitalism. You're just paying for capitalism. No, absolutely. I just thought there could be one respite. You know, take one deep breath during the corona. Nope, no, 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 no. Still a chance to get people when they're down. Well, people lose their jobs. People lose their jobs. But you know what? A seven hundred percent markup. It's all good. It's all good. When, it's all fa- it's fashion. When you tour again, is there going to be like at the merch table, like <laughs> are there going to be masks with the t-shirts and all the, there'd be, there'd be gonna be like tour masks. Hell yeah. Hazmat suits. I'm going to have entire hazmat suits, you know? That's a fantastic um, idea. Yeah. Can you, were you, you were supposed, were you supposed to be touring as we speak? I'm always supposed to be touring. Yeah. I'm always supposed to be touring. And, uh, so it's a bit ironic because I'm, I'm, um, I, uh, yeah, I couldn't obviously, you know, whatever. And, um, but it's, it's been had a weird effect on my body. The, the backs of my shoulders, like the lower of my shoulder blades are beginning, beginning to sort of decompress to a degree, you know, because I'm so used to travel, so used to moving. So the other side of it is, is, um, is that, yeah, I meant to be on tour, but it's weird for my body to not be traveling, not doing stuff. Yeah, and it, it. I wonder how it'll be to because I, I don't. It's obviously. A, I don't think a switch is going to flip, and all of a sudden we're just going to be in in high energy mode again. I think it will be gradual, but I do wonder, like all the people who are so used to the momentum of go 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 go, and then slamming on the brakes, if it'll be if it'll take a little while to work back up to that momentum, or maybe do you think you might decide by the end of all this, like I don't know if I need to tour all the time, maybe just some of the time. I don't tour. So I tour like we tour like four, five months of the year. Oh, that's not bad. So it feels like well, it's it's a lot. You know, it's a lot. Um, but I'm never away for more than three weeks or so. Three weeks is the limit that I go away for. Yeah. But then in the summers, I tend to do a couple of months. You know, just on those tours. But is it still fun? Do you do do you have a sense of like ah, this is something we have to do because we're putting out music and it's good to tour, or do you genuinely do it because you like it? Could you imagine if my answer was like, yeah, I got to tell you, man, it's, it sucks <laughs> every minute. I got to tell you, can you imagine? But there must yeah, be people just do who it, do it just because do it for they the feel money. obligated. I do it for the money, the semi-fame, <laughs> the lukewarm catering. 
and uh, I the like boiled devil limited eggs. limited selection of alcohol <laughs> that, you know, that never changes because my ride hasn't changed since twenty years. So no, um, I love. I mean, I can't. I I've seen people doing that like that. I've seen yeah. people on stage who are effectively kind of phoning it in or something. But I just. I mean, that'd be so horrible. I mean, I'm obsessed about it. I love it so much. I mean, Good. I couldn't imagine. I mean, that's why my first incarnation of my band kind of disintegrated, withered away. It just sort of, uh, nothing really happened. Nobody left. It just sort of, we looked and all of a sudden there wasn't a bench for us to sit on. Nobody wanted to go away. One guy, guitar player, Nigel, he just missed his first kid he felt growing up, you know, the first sort of five, six years of their life. And, so then it was a put a delay on the touring until get a bit of time at home. Then it's like, is that enough time? So then I did a side project. No. Is that enough time? Oh, do you want to do after this band institute? Do you want to do it now? No, no, no. And I was like, oh, so I did a solo record. I mean, um, but singers and bands doing solo records. Please don't. Please don't. Don't. No one cares. No one wants it. We'll wait for your band to sort the shit out. No one we wants don't want a solo it. record? We don't want it. It's halfway house. Now, I did a solo record, you know, which is exactly... So I lived through this experience. I speak from the, from the, the point of um, the absolute experience of doing the wrong... It wasn't the wrong thing. It was like I wasn't left any choice um, because they didn't want to tour anymore. So what I should have done then is just got, my, got the new version of Bush saying, hey, whoever wants to do it. You know, the bass player wanted to do it for one cycle, one, one tour, the guitar player didn't. I was like, "This is chaos." So I'm still hungry as a as a as a you know kid on uh, one of the Lord of the Flies. You know, I'm still as hungry as that. Tom and Kent and Castaway. I feel that hunger, and I love it. So there's no way to do it. I mean, you know, there's some people that are trying to get on that slot that you got. That if you don't deliver, I mean, I think it, the the adage of being as good as your last song, last release, last show, it just holds true. Don't you know, find that your last stand up is like that's where it's at. That's how good you are. Well, no, but, I was going to go to the Beacon Theatre four years ago. I was amazing. I was on fire <laughs> that night. <laughs> but I, you know, for me, having done both, I, it, but it's different for stand-ups because, like, I need to, theatres are fun once the act is in a very presentational mode. Right. But I, but I like being in clubs because they're very intimate. You're almost standing in the crowd. I can riff with people. I can work on new material. I can pivot when you're when you're doing a theater. You you can't really talk to people in the audience because people up there don't can't see the person in the front and they can't. Right. So I don't know. I mean, is the experience for you different in terms of do do you like the energy of an intimate room versus a versus a theater versus like an arena? Like, is there is there too many people? Are there not enough people? Like, or is it all different? Right. Uh, I think that in in. Um the balance that I always try and find is no matter how, wherever the whatever size of the room, um, and we, you know, play from, um, you know, really big, bigger places to smaller places. Sometimes there's like one-offs, there's like surprise shows. So there's all different sizes. Um, the trick is for me personally, as an entertainer performer is to just establish intimacy, establish connection with whoever, whatever the size of the audience. There's all this, my only sort of MO is just to not be disconnected from the crowd and uh, to find a way to just right to connect with the crowd, you know, and, and really, you know, you understand that as a performer, you just, 
is a, there's sort of there's, a, there's um, hidden wavelengths, you know, that you can abseil into someone's like psyche in that in the space. You can get it, or you completely miss it, and you can't have any connection with them. And uh, that's a disconnected show. Like for instance, what I don't like is really high stages. Right, high stage is the worst. When people are, like down the pits, but like really down, it's you. I try my best. And I'm, I've done a few movies. I don't want to boast, but I've done a few movies, so I can. I know. I can, I can unravel the unroll the thespian side of my life, you know, and just be like, I'm so connected to you, but I can't see you. You're like below my ankles. You're 15 totally feet below my ankles, but my goodness, are we connected? Slightly. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And it's weird to look down. Oh, at it's people. terrible. Yeah. So, um, but that's the gist of it. And uh, and and the other thing that I love to do is, um, you know, I'm quite an un- uninhibited performer. You know, I like that to be uninhibited and be very free. Is to be as energized and committed and looking for connection is if you're playing to a hundred people, as if you're playing to fifty thousand people. Absolutely. And it's so much fun because when you're the smaller venue, you. You can kind of make people feel a bit um, a bit awkward to having to be dealing with you. Like, oh my God, this is a lot of performance in a small space. I better like, you know, I've got to loosen up. My date's going to like leave me, you know what I mean? You, you'd sort of force people to be involved, you know, and that's why, especially when I go in the crowd, um, I go in the crowd because I like breaking that, the wall between the stage and the audience. And I like, going to the back of the room where people can't believe that you've made the effort. You know, they're up there sort of, you know, texting or something. I don't know what they're doing. Right. And uh, they just, they can't, you know, you go up there and they're like in their seats and, you know, the slightly, you know, the, the, you know some, some people find it hard to get out of their seats quickly. They trip, they knock over popcorn, drinks, beers. And, um, but there's a real, there's a real, um, it's like that, the energy wavelength. It's like me going out in the crowd is just sort of, plugging everyone's energy into the wall socket. Everyone's like, (laughs) it's like, uh, it's really good. It's really fun. You said something that I I would love to try to explore a little bit because I'm endlessly fascinated by it. But you said, oh, you're only as good as your last thing, you know, whether it's music or stand-up or whatever. And I am, I, I, I feel like there's this constant struggle between, because in the, in any creative pursuit, it can be very difficult to quantify the ultimate question, which a lot of people want to answer, which is, how am I doing? Am I doing well? And when you work <laughs> in a very linear job, okay, you get to this point, and then you get a raise and a promotion, and then you get this, and then you get a parking space, and then you get a watch, and then, you know, it's very linear. But what we do is not linear at all. And I feel like we can get into a lot of trouble as performers by picking the wrong things to define whether or not we're doing a good job. You know, we look at a lot of external cues. But I feel like the internal cues are just as important, how we're perceiving what we're doing. And mm-hmm. so how to navigate that? Because, you know, to what you said, ah, you know, it's true in the music business, you're as good as your last thing. But is another way to look at that like, yeah, but that means that you could still be a second away from another big thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's never really over if you continue the journey. I don't know, does any of that make no. sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, no, it's a precipice and it's a tightrope. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're continually, you know, for me, I'm always a semitone away from disaster. So I think we're always on that precipice. I mean, life is like that. Driving a car is like that. You know, you're, you're 
five foot from going the other direction, getting killed by another car. Absolutely. Absolutely. But just in terms of how we define success for ourselves, mm. you know, it's, it's so easy to just look at the external stuff like cash, how, no? how many people showed up, how much money, how much notoriety, how much blah, blah, blah. But you know, the internal stuff, like the fact that you are just as passionate playing for 50 people versus 50,000 people is a great, that's good because if you only had a very narrow way to define how you probably you only got switched on after 5,000 people, anyone below 5,000 <laughs> it's a total failure. You guys are like, you're okay, but you know, <laughs> four, four, nine, nine, nine. No, thanks. 5,000 is a magic number 5,000 and up, but you know, there are, but there are people that, and, and I also think it's interesting that your band got to a certain point where they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We've, we, we get it. We have success. We've played stadiums, we've done everything, but now there's life stuff. And you never think about the life stuff when you're in your 20s. You just think about playing for stadiums, I would imagine, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, they, I suppose they were more responsible for me. They had kids earlier. Um, I'm lucky, you know, I can bring my kids out on the road. And um, I don't know, there's a sort of a weird side of me that even though it's it is hard and challenging to be away from them. I'm with them half the time because of, you know, my divorce, but um, it's what I do. And I think that when you have kids, you know, I wanted them to join my life, not my, my life to join them, you know? And so therefore that's, and especially now it's not, you know, the you know, streaming. I mean, we, we both remember the times when musicians could exist by selling records. And now that's a sort of a, a, a sort of a, I don't know, that's a, that's a storybook. That's a history class now. Let me <laughs> sit down, class, gather around. There's a ye, ye old record stores, ye oldie tower records. Oh, yeah, that doesn't even mean anything anymore. I mean, no, I, I, if I said to my kids, I mean, prior to the fact that, that they, you know, all the powers that be, which is in my case, Apple, um, there's nowhere to put a CD. You know, I mean, maybe in the car. And even then, it's sort of like you know, it's like here's the vintage box you can put in, but it's, there's no, there's no, there's nowhere to play CD. I do miss the days of going to like Tower Records, and then just looking at album covers, like just looking at the right. covers as part of the experience for whether or not you were going to buy something. Obviously, you'd have bands that you liked, but then you would see a particularly cool or provocative cover or something really artistic. You go, I don't know what this is, but the vibe of this cover is so good. Yeah. I'm going to try it. And yes. you might actually like it. Sometimes That's what happened I'm with the Pixies for me, the Surfer Rosa. That was how that cover worked. And that's oh, how wow. I discovered the Pixies. Because that cover was, I don't know if you remember, the kind of the flamenco dancer girl and the side shot of her. It's iconic. Um, so... I used to, uh, what I used to do, and I miss a lot, is when I'd get a record of bands I like or my favorite band I was into, you know, the, the ceremony of getting back, you bring home the, the vinyl, you look at the artwork, you open it up, and I'd always go straight to their thanks. And I listen to the words, but I look at the thanks, be like, who's hanging out with my band? Who do I wish I was? Let me just see, does anyone, you know, and, you know I've never made it onto those thank you. Um, I never knew anyone who was in bands. And then by the time I knew people in bands, they, people weren't doing it anymore, you know? Oh, they didn't. So when you, when you started releasing albums, did you not do, was there no space to do thank yous anymore? Oh, no, you? we did. Oh, my God, it was torture. I had to, like, do everyone I ever met in my life, you know? And then it was like, 
And I always remember my first girlfriend, who's uh, my first love, Lindsay, and I was with her for five years. And, and I put Miss Thurlow on there because I thought it was cute. And she was really mad at me about it. Like, this is like, you know, 16 stuff. I was like, how can you be mad about that? I just, <laughs> she was mad at me. She was always mad at me. It's funny because you, you like, you took the care to like, oh, I put some extra thought into this. This is going to yes. be extra sweet. Yes. It's like, wait, what? But you. Why did you do that? Oh, it's like, oh boy. <laughs> I couldn't change it. Don't worry. It probably won't sell anything anyway. <laughs> Ten minute albums later. Oh my God. Well, Ten minute times. <laughs> I worked at, I worked at K-Rock from 95 to 98, which was the. <laughs> oh, that was my time. Yeah, that was the peak era for K-Rock, like, directing pop music. I remember, yeah. like, yeah. walking by Kevin Wendell. Isn't it funny? I mean, that was, like, with MTV, I mean, the juggernaut of that was just, it just defined, defined everything, defined it was culture. Crazy. Yeah, I worked for both of them. I, I, I did a show on MTV called Singled Out. It was a dating show, and I worked at K-Rock simultaneously. And the, the influence that both of them had in the 90s on pop culture was mind-blowing because... It it's just everything's changed. But I remember hearing you could hear a song in Kevin Weatherly's office, and then a week later it was in heavy rotation, and that band would be huge. Like it was it was such a magical thing to witness because it was yeah. very like in the movies, like you hear a song on the radio and the next thing it's climbing up the charts. Like I got to see that happen. Well he's gone where's he going to run Spotify or something, right? Is he running Spotify now? He's gone to some some huge, huge job. Uh, with Spotify yeah. in North America, yeah. but that's so weird. I mean, he's the one that you know. There are not that many people in your life, you know. Um, there's a few people in my life, integral people, and he is very central <laughs> to to my life and his, um, you know, support of the of the band um, was really special. Yeah, when Kevin got behind something. He was, I, I loved the guy. He put me on the air. I, I came on to do an interview and then he was like, hey, do you want to do, do you want to be a DJ? And I go, sure. And so he put me, but I was on Midnight to Five. But those those songs on 16 Stone, to me- Did you have to be there? Did you, were you there from Midnight to Five? I was literally the only person in the entire studio because it was so, it was it was such a weird, they didn't even track ratings from Midnight to Five. So- they, there was no call screener. There was no way. It was just me in that, you know, on whatever that ninth floor in Burbank, you know, like that building in Burbank. And that was it. How many days was, a week was that? Um, it was three or four days, three or four nights a week. But I was like, like 22. So like I had, you know, like it didn't, wasn't weird staying up all night, but it, right. it was, it was an incredible time to be there to just witness how much music had changed. And when I left in 98, music pivoted away and sort of went more like Limp Biscuit, yeah. you know, like rap rock mm -hmm. or whatever. But I, I love the period of time that I was there. And uh, it, all, all those songs are so, they're, they're so special to me because it, it was just such a magical time. Right. right. We actually played CDs. Uh, <laughs> you had to pull CDs and it, like carts and stick them right. in the thing. Right. So how did you, how did, did, how did Kevin, did, was, did Kevin discover? Who, who was um, I just was signed to a label, uh, to Toronto Records in the Valley, and uh, I came from London. Um, people didn't know whether this was a legit 
um, labels, legit situation, but I was sort of hovering around labels in England, not really, we weren't getting signed. Um, people weren't prepared to take that leap of faith. And, um, and I think at that time anyway, it was sort of a lot of uh, the whole Britpop scene was going on. And right. Swayed with a big, really big band at the time, Blur, Oasis. So we were like an anomaly anyway. We were like, want to be the Pixies. And so, so then to do a record company, do a record deal in a foreign country like they did in, um, with 4AD in London, I saw it as a, I saw it as a chance to, um, I don't know, to be in the same, I thought something was happening to them, to us what was happening to them. And so um, we, we actually had the record and it. it went to uh, Hollywood Records. It was our distributor and this, this guy, Frank Wells, was killed in a helicopter crash, one of the heads of Disney. Um, and he was very sad. And um, suddenly we had no one looking after the band. And there was a great quote that someone said about 16 Stone, not only are there no singles on this record, there's no album tracks. So they dropped us. Yeah, they dropped us. And um, so then I went back to work and I worked for three months um, back in London. I hadn't been, I'd been to America once, but I, 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 no, I hadn't been to America then. I just assigned, made a record. And then I, so for me, I, I had so used to failure and so used to struggling that, oh, you make a record and you can have a cooked breakfast every morning with a catering budget. And so you don't have to eat when you go home and um, you're making a record. I was like, great. And then when I went back to work, I was like, well, that's life of a musician. You know, it's just like a sort of one-way ticket to nowhere slowly. And, um, then they called us up, and what happened was uh, my label had got a bit played at K-Rock, a bit picked up by um, Ted Field over at Interscope Records, heard it on K-Rock, and then him and Jimmy Iovine, and so it was Ted Field's project, basically. And, um, and then that was the end of that. Then, then K-Rock, and that blew up. Then we had the power of Interscope, and then we had MTV was helping us with the videos, you know? And... Um, that was the juggernaut. Wasn't that amazing? I still often think about MTV, and it's such a shame they don't play music videos. Man, I don't know if they manage if they play music videos now. People would be watching it all the time. I don't know. The re so there, I can, I can, I have two answers for you for that. If you want, what to I think is amazing. One, but before you, before you tell me, isn't that the genius concept about MTV? That I only realized years later that we all paid for programming that wasn't even guaranteed to get on yet. So we'd like either spend between, you know, 250,000. It's like so much money. That was a low video in the 90s. So say you only spent 300 grand on a video, which was, a, that was like a taking it easy video, yeah? Right. In those terrible numbers, now we'd, we'd, we'd do anything for 300 grand. Um, and, uh, and then you, you'd pay that, and then you'd sit there just, please play it, please do our programming. <laughs> you know, nowadays, if you spend 200 grand on a program on Netflix, they're going to show it, that's it. Yep. We'd spend it on a four-minute clip, and that wouldn't always get played. Terrible. Wow, a genius for them. But so, go on, what was your theory of... Well, it's just that, so, there, so I, I believe that there were, if I understand the way that worked, number one, first of all, I can tell you that having done a television show on MTV for a long time, music video shows were the lowest-rated shows. Huh. Because they, if more people had watched them, then they would have programmed them more. But when it started in the 80s, it was such a revolutionary thing. And even then people said, well, attention spans, like the kids, Gen X, they're fucking idiots. You know, their attention spans, they're watching these three minute clips. 
but attention spans got shorter and shorter and shorter. So not only did they rate low, but at a certain point, MTV started realizing they couldn't actually monetize just music video shows. They needed to own IP. So they started creating shows that they could create and license internationally, I imagine. And so it, it, it was a combination of those two things. But even in the 90s, people would say like, ah, your fucking show, like MTV used to play music videos. I remember that in the 90s, people say that. And now, you know, I don't know, MTV's probably 40, about 40 years old. So MTV to me feels like a 40-year-old guy like, hey, what are you kids like? Let me see what I can make for you kids now, you know? So that, so it just, it all changed, but you're right. The idea that you would invest a quarter of a million dollars and cross your fingers. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. I think, was everything Zen the first track that K-Rock played? Yes. I remember it so vividly that first guitar riff from that song it just made me feel like oh i love this i'm at work and um but the fact that you basically had a fucking gold mine you had a brick of solid gold that at first people were like there's not even anything on here and it turned out that literally everything on that album popped. five number one singles but that was that's hollywood records you know that's hollywood records so sometimes when people you know they um I guess Disney began the label. They might not have hired the, the, the you know, they might not have got whoever the famous A&R people right. that we live with. Right. And so when it started, when it turned, and it sounded like it turned, like once it started to turn, it sounded like it turned pretty quickly. Uh, what did the momentum change of that feel like to go back to London to just work a regular job for three months and then all of a sudden like, oh shit, we're like, we're a big band. Well, I, I, I worked the regular job um, and, and, then, and then I came out through the summer and then I came out to LA um, and I played uh, this... Um, What's a club called on 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 um, on uh, San, um, um, Santa Monica? Um, oh shoot me, I can't think about it. But the power now—they weren't used to having bands there. It was like a nightclub. I don't know. Um, I keep them on to the gaslight, but it's not. But oh, anyway, whatever. I'm sure, someone will, will correct us. But um, yeah, so came out, and then I had the one trip to LA, and that's when it had begun on the radio. They're like, "Your record's been playing on K Rock," and I didn't know. 
I was like, what's K-Rock? You know, I was in London. <laughs> so, uh, it's only when it came out in November, and then we came on tour in, in the January or February, brought the record out in December. So it was really insane. Um, the momentum, and it just was like being put into an incredible movie of, of, like, of what it might be like. You know, from the first show at CBGB's was a proper first um, tour date, and uh, before as the John Bavata store. And when it was just literally the stinky, pissy club. And um, I remember not being able to do the soundtrack and we couldn't get back in because it was so packed. That's what I was like. I'd never had that. And it was the first time an audience I played to that had heard the songs and knew the songs. You know, I always played and just sort of like, yeah, you're going to like this one. Here's another song you've never heard. You know, I played with pubs in Camden. Here's another one you've never heard. You know? But but you start playing shows where people come in and they're instantly connected already. I mean, like that's a whole other. That's a whole other. Yeah, that was amazing. That was like you know, and that thing where you start a you start a song. So Zen did da da da, and we was yeah. You're like, oh my god, we're in a movie. Keep playing. Don't stop. Do you do you find uh, that because those those feelings in our life can be. You know, especially when you're when you're young and those things happen for the first time, do you always feel like I got to chase that first feeling? You know, or do you are you are you good about like you know like I'm I'm moving forward. I'm not going to look in the rearview mirror. Like, what's the balance when you've been in a band for for a long time? Oh, I mean, as in, I mean, because it can be like a drug, right? Like that feeling, that adrenaline, that you know. That's probably a significant part of why we're all performers is that that sort of rush, you know? I do it. No, I do it. It's sometimes funny when I do, um, I mean, we do it for the thrill, right? And uh, sometimes when I'm going, I, I remember being in New York and going to do like Letterman or something, whatever, um, whichever show. And um, I'd be at a traffic light, you know, and I've got that sort of adrenaline side, you know, I don't want, I don't want to screw up on the show legendary uh, host, blah, blah, blah. And I look out on the street and see someone at a crosswalk, completely relaxed face, got lunch, chilling out, it's a nice day. And I go, why, why I gotta be, why I gotta be this guy? Why I gotta be pressure guy? Why I always gotta be pressure? Well, I gotta go to work, a little pressure. Well, look at that guy. He's going to work. He's having a break. He's having a sandwich. He's got no pressure. Everything's good. And then I just realized that I'm a, sort of an adrenaline junkie, you know, a, a, um, pressure junkie. You know, and I put myself consistently in situations, as does any performer, um, where the, uh, you know, you can go straight into an idolatry or you can be like, whoa, what happened to that guy? You know, you're right. And uh, you, you, you cross that line and, uh, I, I suppose I like it. You know, I love doing movies. I love acting, and I, nothing is more fun when you go and roll on camera and action. And you just know that the whole set is primed towards you as an actor and whoever you're acting with to deliver in that moment. And do not mess it up. Don't mess your line. Don't be uh, disconnected from the other actors. Be good. Be interesting. And it's that moment. Right, here we go. And I, I guess I like that pressure. Yeah, and I, but I imagine that what comes from that is the focus, right? It's like when you're, 
when you when your hackles get up and you feel the adrenaline, there's like a tremendous amount of focus that happens mm -hmm. as well, right? But then yeah. it's keeping all of the other neurotic stuff out of the, <laughs> out yeah, of the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're touring a new album, how do you know? Because I because the new album got postponed, obviously because of COVID. But it's July, right? The new album's coming yeah. out in July. July. And so, does it feel? Does does writing songs feel the way it's always felt? Do, do you do, do you feel like it's evolved in some way, or do do you have the same struggles with it, or have you gotten better at some stuff? I mean, I it still has the same thrill. You know, like when I write a song, to me, the the beauty of a great lyric, a great melody that sits uh, top on top of um, some really some chord sequences that you like, that to me is. It's so wild because there's 12 notes, but it's an infinite you know, assortment of, um, of uh, arrangements for those notes. You know, and you can go from Mozart to Slipknot, and they always use the same notes. They use the <laughs> same notes. That's such a great... And so I find it really magical and really mystical. And uh, so I just love it. I mean, I, I look back at some of the songs, you know, I've been lucky enough to write. They... Um, they, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they got stuff to them, you know, they, they got value. And then there's new stuff that I write on this record where they also have value. You know, I just have an intrinsic sense of when a song's done, I have an intrinsic belief in if a song is any good or not. And um, so I think my instinct has gotten better and I hope I sing better. I hope I play better. But it's not to say that when I recorded certain songs, I didn't do them justice. And, you know, it's just so if I'm just a self-made you know, wandering minstrel with a band, you know, so I have an ancient job, you know, just, I just happen to be on zoom with a, with a sort of a, with a beautiful acoustic guitar. Here. Just like, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I just don't think there are any, you know, cause you said, ah, I don't know if people should do a solo album or whatever, but I just don't think there are any mistakes because I think every choice that you make leads you to the point you're at now and sets oh, the table. For sure. whatever I just mean there. that for instance, the solo record I made, I was so proud of it. I got so many songs on there that I prefer if they had been Bush songs, I'd feel more connected to just drop them into the set sometimes. So I just it just holds me back a little bit. It shouldn't, it doesn't matter. They're just songs. But um, you know, to create a body of work, and I have all Bush like ten Bush records now, and then eight Bush records, this would be my eight, and then two other records. I just wish there's other two, because there's the same same writer and same person and everything like that and you know look i tried to just on the solo record just minimize the on the one solo project i went heavier on the institute record detuned heavy sort of um heavy metal stuff produced by Paige hamilton from helmet and then on my solo record i collaborated with loads of people and um and tried to use less guitars for emphasis. And everyone's like, where's the guitars? Oh, no, guitars. <laughs> hey, let me try something new. What the fuck? Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, so I'm really, I, I'm proud of those records. I don't mind having done like that. I mean, as you say, I do believe in a very Buddhist sense, whilst not being a Buddhist, that it's just all, it's all, we're all on this, this mad journey we're meant to be on. And uh, the, the rough times are meant to be there to illuminate the good times or to inform the good times. And, Bad songs are there to be to get to the good ones, and um, this is how it goes, you know. And, and whilst you know we're talking about this whole thing of making every show amazing, good, it's that you can't guarantee that everything's as good. You can't be the same consistently, the same. You know, one night you're gonna be funnier on Friday than you were on Sunday. 
Absolutely. Um, I actually, by the way, wish they weren't any gigs on Sundays because everyone's slightly different wrong mindset. Everyone's like, you know, it's Sunday. Yeah, no, I, my, I, I, I didn't do my homework. Yeah. It's like a 10% less. Got to go to work Why tomorrow. Why on Sunday? <laughs> yeah, you have to go to work the next day. It's not like, yeah, Sunday shows. People I, are just not as free. There's mellow, you know, more mellow, you know. It's like, okay, everyone sit down. Let's all sit down. It's Sunday. Or maybe they're just tired from Friday and Saturday. So Sunday's like wrapping it up for them. It's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, some other band got their whole chutzpah on a Friday and Saturday and we're screwed. Yeah. We just got, yeah. we, we got the dredges. <laughs> Thanks for that. Oh, I gave my old socks and a really terrible t-shirt. <laughs> So as we're, because I think I have you for ten more minutes, and I think uh, are you are you going to do a song, or do you are you going to record it separately? No, I, they they asked me if I would do a song for you. As, uh, you know. It was very yeah. tough to. They said, "Oh, uh, you know, uh, Gavin will play a, you know any Bush song you want." And I go, "I don't." There's like so many of them are so meaningful to me. I mean, everything Zen is so meaningful because it like it helped define that era that I worked at K Rock, but then. You know, Machine Head just seemed like, oh, it's like a, it's such a fun song. I'd love to hear acoustically, but Come Down is also a song that I fucking adore. So right. I, I don't know. Is there is there one that is more particularly meaningful to you that you like? Does anyone ever ask you what you want to play? No, not really. But um, um, <laughs> I, I well, I took the opportunity because I I thought I never haven't done Machine Head much, so I tried. I did right. a sort of a version. I love it. I did a version of it. It's not, it's not, I mean, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do the, I, I've done it where I do acoustic, da, 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 I do the whole line, da, da, da. <laughs> I was playing yesterday and I was just like, I don't know, does this sound a bit like, you know, um, not mindful of the fact there's no one else playing with me, I'm playing on an acoustic, you know, it's like, no, this sounds, so anyway. So I, I did. I worked up a little arrangement of right. machine. If you're head. happy, if you're happy with that, I'm more than happy with that. And yeah, I never uh, done it before. I never done it before. So I did when I did the machine head one before. It had a certain style, and then when I played it yesterday, I was like, I wonder if something else. So I, I've done a different, um, different arrangement of it, kind of thing. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. 
Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. So we'll see you. Machine. I walk from my machine. I walk from my machine. 
50,000 people screaming <laughs> in our know. new era of Zoom concerts. Uh, <laughs> 50,000. I thought that is, that sounds fucking, it's so great to, I mean, because the song, I love the song, but it's so fun to hear the chord changes like so clearly. Right. It's, just, it's such a, I mean, I know it's a harder song, but it's like, it's like hard, more hardcore, but it's a pretty song when you do right, it that right. way. It's, it's, I wish I was slightly better at playing it really clearly and perfectly, but it's just, it's all meant to be sort of classically, you know. No, it's beautiful, especially the little breakdown going up the net. Ah, oh, it, was, it was perfect. Um, what, so last two questions. Number one, uh, what are you happy about right now? What are you joyful about in this time when it's so easy to be, you know, negative when we're all trapped seeing bad news all the time? Um, I'm, I'm really joyful about having this record for people to, to fall in love with. You know, that's, that's really it. So it's, yeah. uh, I mean, it's such a luxurious feeling to be, um, to be a creative person with um, something that you do all lined up, ready to go. So I yeah. just know that, that that provides, usually a record for me is like two years of, two years of work, you know, two years of, um, of stuff that's going to happen for me. So that is really exciting. Um, and I, ironically, I don't know what's going to happen. So sometimes I get a bit concerned about it, but ultimately you know, to have 12 new songs for people that love the band to fall in love with, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot to be joyful about. That's fantastic. And then lastly, uh, for people, you know, who are trying to find their own thing or who are creatively struggling with how they define success, just really quickly, how, how do you define success or how would you tell people to healthily define success? Um... Well, success is, 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 I mean, there's a sense of achievement in success, um, of course. But ultimately, success is the same thing as happiness. You know, it's, I think that the biggest, um, the, the most challenging thing for all of us to consider is that, um, is, is that when we take ourselves out of the moment, it's so much it's so easy to get sort of wistful and depressed about the past or concerned about the future and how it's you know how these things you have no control over and so that depression comes from the future so it's so difficult saying the present so being uh, productive as on a minimal level as possible being productive um, and feeling that gives a sense of self um, it can be as stupid as making your bed. It can be as, 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 as stupid as building a house, whatever. It's just a sense of self, self-worth. But it's also a sense of accepting you in the right position at the right time. And so much depression and sadness comes from um, uh, uh, projecting into the future and a bad image and a bad picture. So right. success is like really is absolutely living in the moment. If you can absolutely live in the moment, that's, 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 that's a very successful way to live beautifully said this was a wonderful conversation i was such a great i don't know i was very excited to talk to you 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 uh, you know i'm sure people give you these stories all the time but your band was very much an integral part of my world and my you know like my career development at that time and so it's i i i have very uh soft warm and fuzzy feelings about it so uh, i i really appreciate you and i 
thank you so much for taking the time, man. I, I hope right. you're doing well and I hope you stay safe and healthy. Likewise, thank you. All right, take care. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.